Hi there. Before I get to the episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the legal right to have a safe and legal abortion. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. This decision could also lead to the loss of other rights. To learn more about what you can do to help, go to podvoices.help. I encourage you to speak up, spread the word, and please take care. Now on to the conversation. Hello, hello. Anybody there? Yes. Hi, man. How are you? Oh, I'm well. Daniel. I can... see I see a letter J. Oh, there you are. Okay. Here I am. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. So it's I'm really excited to get to talk to you uh, about your work and uh, a little bit of the uh, origin story, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. Can we start at the beginning? Oh, gosh. Okay. What's the beginning for you? The beginning, beginning. I was born and raised in Los Angeles. My uh, my grandparents came to L.A. Uh, from Mexico around 1920. You know, the huge mm. influx of Mexican immigrants mm. um, escaping the violence of the um, Mexican Revolution, um, mm. which, you know, uh, if folks don't know, the revolution lasted uh, over a decade. And that migration really changed the face of California and Los Angeles. So my grandparents came from Chihuahua and from uh, Jalisco. They came to LA mm. and then the rest is history. So my, my parents, uh, um, they met, um, they grew up in Los Angeles. My dad grew up in Boyle Heights and my mom grew up near USC. If mm. people know Los Angeles at all. <laughs> and, uh, they met, they met at St. Agnes high school. And, uh, so I'm in the middle of five kids. Um, they, I was um, raised in a community not far from Koreatown in okay. Los Angeles. Koreatown, at least back in the day, was predominantly, uh, you know, Latin American immigrant kind of communities, even though it was called Koreatown. <laughs> um, <clears throat> large Korean population as well, but that's mostly the business area. Um, and the community I grew up in, uh, was known as Harvard Heights because it was a Harvard uh, street or avenue uh, nearby. Uh-huh. And um, middle of five kids, my parents um, in the early 60s, they were, um, you know, they had five kids and my dad worked in the factory and my mom mm-hmm. was a homemaker. And then in the mid 60s, they decided to improve their lives, went to community college. Uh, major in psychology, became Head Start teachers. Oh wow! Um, and and then um, my mom eventually opened up her own school at Normandy Playground, which served predominantly Spanish-speaking kids mm. and their families. And my um, my dad continued to get educated. Finally, got his degree and then his master's, and became the first Chicano in management at. Uh, the Rapid Transit District, which is now known as the Metro in Los mm. Angeles. Um, but my dad had wanted to be a writer um, in the 50s. And uh, 
early 60s, he um, wrote stories and poetry on this manual typewriter, <laughs> a, um, a Royal Quiet Deluxe typewriter, which I now own. Oh. My dad, my dad was called back in 2020. And so I inherited it and he couldn't get published. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I became a published writer. Um, he shared the story that, um, you know, I asked him what, you know, can I read any of the stuff you wrote? Mm -hmm. And he said he destroyed it all. Oh no. And, oh, but he was, he was proud of me becoming a writer. I mean, I became a lawyer first. Which he was proud of, but when I became a writer, he was like extra proud. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and because, I, I just have to say that, um, yeah, watching your face as you as you share that story of your parents and that determination, that willingness to just continue and and fight and achieve something under such difficult situations, I imagine, is just is seems like such a huge point of pride for you, you know, to have them as your parents and uh, yeah. and to give you that. Uh, that model was, did you always have that in mind? Like in the way that you saw your parents? So they are, um, they're remarkable people. Um, and yeah, the, the sense of pride, um, that I have is unending. When I was young, I didn't fully understand mm -hmm. because when you're young and you think you know everything, yeah, you know, you just like, you, especially when I went away to college and I came back and I was introducing them to nice wine and nice coffee and, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, you know what happens, you know, yeah, you go, Oh, yeah. I, I know everything all of a sudden. Right, um, right. And, and it wasn't until I became a parent, you know, I, I, I married my law school sweetheart and then we became parents in 1990. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until I became a parent mm -hmm. and I saw what, how hard it is to be a parent, mm -hmm. to be a good parent. You know, it's easy to become a parent. <laughs> it's really hard to be a good parent. Right. And right. the struggles. And I never had, my wife and I never had the struggles, economic struggles that my parents had. Mm -hmm. um, and I think about what they did. It's truly remarkable. Um, so, you know, they had five kids and the college degrees amongst us include Stanford and Harvard and UCLA uh, lawyer on Marymount, you know, yeah, that's pretty amazing. And it's pretty amazing, not because of us, it's pretty amazing because of them, because of what they did mm. in terms of making certain that we, um, we went, well, the community we grew up in, the public schools were, were pretty rough back then. Mm. Um, and so they scraped, sent us to the local Catholic school. Mm. Okay. And it was hard economically. That was hard. Yeah. And so, but that, that was what they were trying to do for us to try to keep us away from the gang element, from the, you know, um, some of the harsher elements that you see in urban schools. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, I think about what they did. It's just, it's just really remarkable. My mom's 89 now mm. and she's been going through because with the passing of my father, uh, you know, she's been going through a lot of pictures and a lot of stories I had never heard of before. Yeah. And I'm seeing these pictures of how young they were when they started. Oh my God, they're babies. <laughs> I mean, they're, you know, their, their faces were so smooth and they look like little kids. My son's 32 right now. So, uh -huh. you know, I look at, at them when they were in their twenties, when they started their lives. And, and so going back to my father's dream of writing, you know, he made certain, both my parents made certain we had library cards and we always read. 
reading was really important. Mm -hmm. But my father in particular had certain writers that he had fallen in love with. Um, and, and the canon back then does not reflect what the canon looked like now, looks like now, mm -hmm. in terms of having more Latinx writers available to us. Back mm -hmm. then, he got the usual, you know, Hemingway and Fitzgerald and Virginia Woolf, you know, um, same writers that I eventually fell in love with as well as a, as a young, as a young person. Um, and, and so, and James Joyce was another big one. Um, and he also had us reading Don Quixote at a very young age <laughs> in English, in English. Yeah. You can't read the Spanish is, you know, is like Shakespearean right. time. It's not know, as approachable, uh, right? Yeah. It, it, it's uh, uh, particularly for, um, for Pochos, it's, it's difficult to, <laughs> It's difficult enough trying to struggle and read through Spanish and and, and finally getting it, but reading uh, uh, Don Quixote in, in that kind of you know mm -hmm. uh, Spanish, it's just it's just very <laughs> difficult. So in any event, um, so he planted in my brain certainly this dream of of becoming a writer someday. Uh, but it wasn't until after law school and after I had already established myself as a lawyer at age thirty nine. Uh, I decided to start writing fiction. Mm. Uh, I had written always in school. I was always on school publications. Mm -hmm. But when I was in college, I went to Stanford. Uh, I majored in English literature, but I took not one writing class because <laughs> I thought, okay, I'll become an English professor and I'm not going to study writing. Uh, and it wasn't until I was 39 when I was struggling with the grief of uh, and my wife and I, um, we had a son, but she had suffered through many miscarriages after that. Yeah. I was dealing with grief. So I started to write fiction. Yeah. And I wrote my first book, which is now out of print, and hopefully it'll be in print again in a couple of years. Oh, good. But it, it's called uh, The Courtship of Maria Rivera Peña. And it's, it's, it's a very simple love story, and it's based on family history. Um, and I wrote that. I was dealing with, in the book, I dealt with the joys and great sadness of our lives, mm -hmm. and it helped me. Oh, it was yes. cathartic. Mm -hmm. um, but once that got written, and eventually went with a small publisher, um, I couldn't stop writing. And I just was <laughs> writing short stories and poetry, and submitting and teaching myself the business of writing. How do you submit right, short right. stories? Because I don't have an MFA. How was so that I uphill climb, though? If you could, if you could elaborate a little bit on that learning curve to get into this so, industry. So um, what I did was I purchased, I started reading magazines like uh, Poets and Writers magazine, which I subscribed to. And in fact, for my latest book, they actually listed my book as one of the titles, um, <laughs> in a big upcoming title. So, nice. so um, and, and there's a multitude of magazines to help beginning writers mm. understand how to do a submission letter, a query letter, Mm -hmm. uh, what the manuscript should look like when you submit it. And because I already been trained as a lawyer, I was not afraid to jump in and, and do research, you know? Mm -hmm. So I researched and then I started, and the internet started to explode at the time. So this mm -hmm. was, um, this was in the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, and there were more and more literary journals online. And, and so the market began to expand. So I just started to, submit stories and I started to get published, mm -hmm. you know, remarkably. <laughs> I just like, oh my goodness, people, <laughs> editors are liking my work. Yeah. I eventually had enough stories 
for a collection, submitted it to a literary contest. I was, I ended up being a finalist. So by, by being one of 10 finalists for this literary co contest, I decided to submit to Bilingual Press um, with the letter showing that I was a finalist. Mm -hmm. And so that gave me some cachet. Yeah. And, and so uh, Gary, the late Gary Keller, who ran Bilingual Press, um, um, he, he accepted my first collection, Assumption and Other Stories. And it was, um, that was my start to, um, to being published by um, um, mostly university presses mm -hmm. in terms of the short story format. Mm -hmm. I'm primarily a short story writer, but I have a poetry collection that's out as well. Um, and I, I, I interview Latinx writers primarily uh, for like uh, Los, Angeles, Los Angeles Review of Books, for La Bloga, where I've been blogging for about 20 years. Mm. Um, and then I became a playwright a few years ago. Oh, lovely. <laughs> We, we need, we need more. We need more. <laughs> Welcome to and the fold. <laughs> and I tell you, it's very true. I know you're a playwright and, and you're award-winning playwright and um, playwriting is such a crazy, crazy world <laughs> uh, compared to, you know, when you're writing short stories or a novel or a book of poems, it's very solitary. I mean, you might, mm. You know, you work with an editor when one of the pieces gets published by a literary journal, but then, and then eventually you work with an editor with the press. But right. it's very solitary, right? <laughs> this playwriting business, I tell you, when I taught myself how to write a play, and then I had plays produced here in LA, and working with actors and working with theaters and working with directors, yeah. it's like <laughs> it was so collaborative. And, and, and it was all during the pandemic when all this was going on. And oh, I do my first. Bad rehearsals on zoom and all this stuff and it was just nuts and i loved it oh yeah i loved it yeah. i absolutely loved it and i hope to have more productions and i hope to write more plays so that's a whole nother world that's just it's a special very special world and is a world which allows me to help uh, it, it allows me to create characters for latinx actors that are not stereotypical mm. that cover the 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 gamut of experience from, you know, uh, working class like my my grand grandparents and my and, and for a while for, like my parents mm -hmm. <clears throat> to professionals um, and everything in between. Yeah, Be because that's us. We are right. everything, right? And that is that is such an admirable stance to take on on playwriting as a craft because you do welcome folks in and you're able to just break things open by including as many people as possible. And for me, that, one of the big reasons why I was so excited to talk to you was because you almost, at least from the bio, and please correct me if I'm wrong, there's this almost duty to to track down, to document, to to gather mm -hmm. the experience, in particular in, in your home turf, which is Los Angeles and, and California and that area. And to me, being a, a Mexican, almost identity-less you know, person in Wyoming, it's just so refreshing to see, look at this cluster of, of diversity within one place. And you, it seems like that's sort of become a part of the mission to gather and to bring in those voices. Is that correct in your writing? That absolutely. In fact, one of my plays, my second full length play, the book of want, which is an adaptation of my novel of the same name. It's sort of like a Chicano version of, uh, uh our town. Mm -hmm. And and 
it has huge cast. It has 18 characters mm-hmm. with doubling it's 12. Yeah. And I wrote it with circle X theater, um, as part of their inaugural, uh, emerging, um, playwrights group, um, last year. Mm-hmm. And we, and then we had a zoom reading we had a director, Dr. Daphne secret, who's amazing. And, and sometimes we'd have actors crying, um, on some of the issues that I was dealing with. And I was dealing with a, a lot, a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I have same sex relationships. I have the issue, well, uh, sexual abuse and rape, but also, um, loving relationships mm-hmm. and raising kids in this country. And, you know, I had all a bunch of different things, right? With, but with a lot of humor, believe it or not, <laughs> a lot of humor in between, because I, I often write humorous pieces mm. um, and, you know, to have actors respond in, in, in a way, you know, thanking me for writing intelligent characters or thank you for approaching this issue of marriage equality or thank you for, um, for um, talking about this, this question of um, when um, women are abused and, and people don't listen to them because mm. that's one of the storylines in, in the play. Um, I think all those things are just so important and, 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 and it can be done in a non preachy way. It can be done in an enter- entertaining because the primary goal for anything I write, mm-hmm. it needs to entertain. It has to be engaging. It has to be interesting. Yeah. It, it cannot be a, for me at least a political, uh, diatribe. You know, I write commentaries too for like, the Guardian, New York Times, LA Times. Sure. I've written commentary, and that's a different creature. That's a different mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. And I can spread my political wings more explicitly in those kinds of pieces, which is right. fine. When I'm dealing with art, meaning fiction or poetry or or um, uh, plays, it needs to be a bit more subtle. It needs to be kind of woven into yeah. the tapestry of the story. Yeah. And, so. and it seems like, you know, I've had a couple of conversations this morning with uh, mm-hmm. other writers and creatives, and we're almost arriving at this idea that the art of, of connecting with people has to begin from an organic place, not from a, an intellectual place to say, this is my theme. This is how I'm going to cover it. And then they're going to be entertained because of that formula. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it does seem like, the most uh, inviting work is the one that that just comes from within. And then whatever politics are are ingrained in you or whatever you've acquired over the years just kind of, you know, blossoms out in its own way rather than like a, a billboard or or like a, a marketing thing or a slogan. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like this is this is just things coming to light. Um, but primarily it comes down to the people and the relationships in the story, right? in particular right. playwriting. But I imagine like poetry or short stories might, might be a little bit differently, or do you tackle them that way as well? I think it's actually the same. Um, I was having an interesting conversation with, um, the editor, one of the editors of a journal that's going to be publishing one of my uh, magical realism short stories. Mm. And, um, he was asking me. He wanted to explore what my story meant. Yeah. <laughs> and the story is called My Chicano Heart and is about a Chicano who falls in love with a Chicana. And on their uh, 
the night before they get married, they're lying in bed and she says, may I have your heart? And he says, okay. So he opens up his chest and she like takes his heart mm -hmm. and then puts it into a box um, and keeps it in the box. And then it just, it's just very it strange things there. happen. Yeah, yeah. It just goes from there. <laughs> and some of it's written like a play. It's just, it's just like uh, very meta. Uh, I love and, that. <laughs> and so, and so he, the editor said, you know, in the beginning scene where you're describing this and that, was that a symbol for, you know, and then he, <laughs> he says what he thinks it's a symbol for. And I said, you know, I, I the way I write, I, um, I, a lot of my, particularly my magical realism, tends to be kind of dream imagery. Mm -hmm. And I don't set out to say, I'm going to write, I'm going to put a raven into the story because it's going to be a symbol for evil. I'm going to, you know, or, or spirit or whatever. <laughs> you know, I, I don't explicitly ever, I don't think I ever do this, say, okay, I'm going to put something in to be a symbol for. Mm. However, I've had my work analyzed by students and by professors and by editors, and I always tell them, if you can support your argument with, with the text, mm. you know, because he told me what he thought the beginning scene was a symbol for, I, I told him, I thought that was beautiful. I, mm -hmm. I didn't intend it, yeah. but now that you've said it, maybe I did, I have no idea, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. but, but I clearly put that scene in for a reason. Mm -hmm. And, and um, it was just a very natural part of my storytelling technique. Mm -hmm. So I think that um, th that's my approach. I think other people are more intentional about what they're going to do in terms of, you know, uh, XYZ is going to be a symbol for this, yeah. um, or I'm going to make this statement. I tend not to do that. I tend to, to really kind of let my imagination run wild. I try to, when I write, I tend to go into, uh, into the zone and I tend to, uh, not let the, um, that little interior sensor tell me not to say something. Mm. Yeah. I was you know? curious of that process because it does have to be very removed from, from any kind of real world logic and you, you don't, there's no room for censorship within that. So is, is free writing a part of your gathering process or can you elaborate a little bit on how that gathering process happens so that you have a, a good number of ideas or, or pieces to potentially uh, call from? Well, number one, I don't write every day. Mm. Um, I simply do not write every day. I do, however, read every day and, and sometimes I deal with the business of writing every day, you know, writing mm -hmm. to editors, doing queries, stuff like that. Um, I tend to write when my brain has been percolating for a while on um, a line or image mm -hmm. or concept, yeah. something that I see. Um, and then <laughs> I, I will use my um, the weekend or vacation time or evenings to start kind of mapping things out. Mm -hmm. I always begin with the title because unless you know, talk about short stories, because yeah. I'm primarily a short story writer. Sometimes I will wrestle with the title for weeks before I write one word of the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And 99% of the time when that story is published and then it ends up in a book, that title is the original title that I came up with. Oh, I and titles that. are, titles are incredibly important to me. Yeah. 
Um, once I have the title, and sometimes the title is tongue in cheek, sometimes it it is a double entendre, sometimes it is simply the name of the main character, yeah, um, whatever it might be. And then I start writing, and I don't plot things out. I don't outline. I just mm. I, I I you know the beginnings of stories are very very important to me. So usually, um, what's been percolating in my mind is the beginning of a story. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, set, so. Oh, go, go ahead. No, just the setting of the stage. And yeah. they're different. And then you have different approaches because they're different ways. Sometimes you can plop someone in the middle of a, of um, a discussion. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you are setting this, this kind of like what the terrain is. Right. Right. And I, I just want to comment that I love the way you described it because I, up until recently I hadn't realized it, but I do something similar with titles where the title becomes a challenge to me where there's a Mm -hmm. phrase or there's an image or or something that really kind of draws me in that says that needs to be a play. And then you're sort of forced to fashion something around that. And sometimes it turns out very artificial. Other times it's incredibly successful, but Mm -hmm. I think that ultimately comes down to that phrase, that title, Mm -hmm. that sentence, that thing. Uh, It's just super, super interesting. But there's there's a nice sense of like the machine kind of taking its own form and then it figures out what to do um on its own you're just kind of following it as uh as you try to craft that story but- right and the and the inspiration can come from many different places so so um i wrote a short story published recently by um uh, the rumpus mm-hmm. and um and the story is simply called nacho and it was inspired by a tweet from um, Gabino Iglesias, the, no- uh, the novelist, yeah. crime novelist. And uh, he had published one of my stories in an anthology on border noir a couple years ago. And he had tweeted about having a mass removed from his neck. And, you know, the process of dealing with the fact that he had this mass in his neck for a long time and then he had it removed. It was just very strange. Mm-hmm. So I ended up writing a story. <laughs> I told I told him I tweeted back. I'm writing a short story based on that. So I wrote this story about this guy who has a mass in his neck and he has this, you know, he's single and his mother wants him to get married all the time. You know, like all good Mexican mothers. Yeah. And, and he's just kind of dealing with this lump in his neck. He finally has the lump removed and the doctor... Um, she asked him, you know, do, do you want to take the lump? You want to have it in a jar? And he, he, he thinks she's joking. And finally she said, no, do you, do you want it? And it's okay. So he brings home this jar, this lump, oh. and he puts it by his bed. And every night, you know, he pats it and, and <laughs> says goodnight. But then it grows into, it grows into a roommate. Oh, wow. Um, and still looks like this big mass. And he ends up with this roommate that is this now very large, massive flesh, this lump that was removed from him. And then it becomes a bromance. <laughs> but the bromance goes really goes awry and yeah. things and things fall apart. But so so the an inspiration for for any story can come from anywhere it could come right. from an npr right. story it can come from something mm-hmm. your mom said it could come from a tweet i've written and i've now written like three stories based on tweets oh, from yeah. fellow writers yeah but you know that's <laughs> that's what it takes is having no censorship at the onset whereas most mm-hmm. people say oh there's nothing there without even really internalizing mm-hmm. 
a lot of that stuff. And so I do think that Twitter can be like a really fertile ground for that sort of thing where you're just getting bombarded with a lot of different possibilities. But oftentimes we just have to stow them away for a moment. Don't let them go just yet, <laughs> you know, or don't surrender that idea just yet. So uh, not to switch gears here too much, but I'm curious mm-hmm. of the idea of the word pocho mm-hmm. and what that means to you. What mm-hmm. What is that? in in your world in your sense mm. and and um mostly out of my own ignorance and, and curiosity because mm-hmm. depending on who you talk to there's there's a lot of bias toward that word good or bad you know sometimes so i'm curious what that means to you so um i'm second generation californian right so my my grandparents came from mexico so um and i was immersed in english language you know, growing up my parents were raising us bilingually, but at about age three, I stopped speaking English and Spanish completely. I, in fact, I stopped speaking for a year oh. from age three to age four. Wow. During that time, my parents kind of panicked and took me to see a doctor. And this is in the early 1960s. Mm. So, um, and I remembered the battery of telling There was a two-way mirror. I remember there was a mom told me to do certain things, all kinds of tests, a battery of tests hearing test and that uh, the doctor said that I was of normal intelligence. My hearing was fine and that, um, but my parents should cut all Spanish in the house. <laughs> wow. Which was oh, back man. then. I mean, the bias is strong. is still here, but mm-hmm. back then was really strong. And my parents being young parents were very, very worried. So they listened to the doctor because of course, mm-hmm. You know, you that's listen what you to do, the doctor, right? yeah, yeah. And so, so I struggle with Spanish. I try to use it in my fiction and my my playwriting, mm-hmm. um, but I struggle with it. And and so, growing up in a predominantly Mexican American immigrant community and going to grammar school, where we're, you know we're ninety percent brown folks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, sometimes I I felt, and there's some of us like this. Um, I felt um, like not part of the community, you know, mm. I was a pocho because mm. my Spanish was not so good. Right. And, and, but other times I was very much of the community because my family was a big, important part of that community. So we were, you know, mm. I, you know, you I had were a lot of friends. In, I, in, in a certain way. In certain way. I was good at sports or I was also a very good artist. So I, I often drew for the, for the um, publications and people mm-hmm. love that, you know, they love <laughs> someone who can do stuff like that. Yeah. And, and so, so I had a fairly, you know, I had fairly rich friendships, but there was always sort of like, you know, my friends who were immigrants themselves, there was always something. I had a good friend, um, Jose, who, um, and he, he and I really got along cause we both were big readers. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, his nickname was the owl because he had big glasses. <laughs> <laughs> and and so um, Jose and I would um, would talk about books and stuff like that. But he was born in Mexico, so he would bring the most amazing Mexican lunches. Um, <laughs> and my mom, uh, who could cook wonderful Mexican food at home, for our lunches she made them very Americanized. Uh-huh. You know, so it was white bread, Wonder Bread, mm-hmm. with bologna and mayo. 
you know that kind you know that kind oh, of that's such like, a that's such a curious comparison happening there especially at such an early age being a kid mm-hmm. and identifying that so immediately i i yeah just you know so i bring that and then he bring his mexican food and i look over and think oh my god that looks <laughs> <laughs> why uh, like why can't i get that can my mom, mom you're shorting that? me on the lunches <laughs> my, my mom would cook that you know she would cook all kind you know lengua and mole she cook all these wonderful things for dinner you know mm. um my dad would make chilaquila you know so so we got that but for when you went out in the world you kind of that's co- interesting you know, you, you know, you, you code switched even with your food. Wow. Right. That so is, there was a lot, yeah. a lot of that going on. And, and I think part of that had to do, like my dad likes to say, he used to say, um, he had the Spanish beaten out of him. He had to relearn it. Mm. And the nuns would just, and the priests, they just, you know, oh, can't imagine back in the forties, you know, they was like, you don't speak Spanish. Mm. Um, and so, so I, you know that that kind of plays with your brain a little bit. I oh, think sure. in terms of in terms of how you kind of function in the world. So um, so you know, pocho in some ways that term has been reclaimed. Um, it you know there was there has been a lot of pushback in the last decade uh, where people say you don't say you know again it's más chicano you know don't play that game don't say right. who's more chicano than someone else because we you know we are um we are a tapestry of many different experiences and we all belong to the family so don't tread don't be don't exclude Mm -hmm. um and that's why in my own writing i try to have people of a lot of different backgrounds Mm -hmm. you know from from like uh, people like my grandmother the one grandparent i knew because everyone else passed away early Mm -hmm. um isabel uh, velasco she was um you know she she was a strong mexican woman born in Jalisco and she was tough. She smoked cigarettes. She liked her beer and, <laughs> you know, uh, she worked in the laundry her whole life. You know, this yeah. is a pretty right. remarkable woman. And she was a widow at age 50, you know, or, mm-hmm. or, or early 50. So, you know, and so she finished raising her three daughters. So it's sort of like, you've got to, um, for me, at least you need to approach people with an open heart and not exclude members of the community because mm-hmm. they don't walk a certain way. They don't talk a certain way. Right. They don't whatever a certain way. Right. You know, it, we have, we have, we have society doing that to us enough. Yeah. I was just going to say, there's already other battles that are, that are having to be dealt with and there's no need to create right. new ones. And that brings me to this article that you wrote, um, that, that, um, I read just recently where you were, Telling the story of when you were in the in the football team, yeah, in high school, uh-huh. and and the coach has just said the most horrific stuff to you, and it it just takes one phrase, right? Could you, right. Could and you that, share a little bit on that on that? Story? Sure, and that was a piece for the Los Angeles Times, um, and I'm happy they published it. The um, our football team. Um, had a coaching staff that was pretty much all white at that time. And the coaches were arguing during one of the breaks, they were arguing about who wrote blue suede shoes. And one coach who's now, who has since passed, one coach said, oh, it was Elvis Presley. And I, I perked up because being a good Chicano, I knew my oldies. <laughs> I listened to K Earth 101, <laughs> the oldie station. I love it. I love the American graffiti soundtrack, all that stuff. I said, no, Carl Perkins wrote it. 
recorded it and uh, Elvis Elvis eventually recorded it also had a big hit with it and in front of all my friends all my you know football uh, teammates and the other coaches he said what do you know you stupid Mexican and this basically it was just shut me down right? yeah and what do you do that's right that's when the, the people the authority who are, yeah supposed to be lifting you up and they right. they just immediately with one phrase just decimate right yeah. and that was just but one comment i mean they're you know uh walking from my house to the high school during summer to go for football practice on a couple of different occasions i was stopped and frisked by police just by walking while brown right mm -hmm. walking yeah. with my gym bag and completely searched mm -hmm. you know my bag everything yeah and then telling and then telling and then saying well, where are you going football practice i'm a student at loyola high school oh, okay and then let me go you know and and even being stopped by ice and questioned by ice on the amtrak a few years ago <laughs> as a government lawyer yeah going from la to san diego to supervise my team of lawyers for the california department of justice i was i was um sitting there wearing my blue blazer you know my gray slacks white shirt right i had my legal papers in front of me preparing for the day on the amtrak in the morning a member of ice comes on a young guy and he looks around he looks at the other folks who are all white and mm -hmm. then he looks at me and says excuse me sir where were you born what city were you born in oh good that's Lord. what he asked me oh my god and i looked at him and i said excuse me and he said what city were you born now because i'm a lawyer with the california department of justice um i have a badge okay yeah and uh, i use it you know to get into court and stuff like that mm -hmm. And, and so I said, I have a badge in my briefcase, which is right above me in the bin. Would you like me to get my badge? Would you like to see my badge? Mm -hmm. And I could see in his stupid little face. I could see who's thinking, oh, crap, I've just profiled law enforcement. <laughs> wow. And after a few moments, he said, no, thank you, sir. Thank you very much. And he walked away. So, so this is the life that we lead, you know, and you're in Wyoming, Wyoming. right? Yeah. So, 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 so we all have stories, right? We have yeah. too many stories, too many stories. And when you get stories like that, but they come from your, from your educational experience, or you have someone, because that coach also taught, he had, he taught a history or something, you know, right? You right. Know, so he, right. All the coaches also taught some kind of class. Yeah. So these are people in authority in the educational system who mm -hmm. are basically saying, you're stupid. And the reason why you're stupid is because you're Mexican. Mm -hmm. So, so, uh, and none of our literature, none of our curricula had, had writers of color. I can't think of one. Yeah. Almost all white male, some women sometimes sprinkled in. And so when I, when I decided to be a writer, you know, I, I realized it was also um, a, it was also no fiction anthology of um, Latinx writers um, about LA or based in Los Angeles, remarkably. Mm. How could, how that could be in, in, 
the, in the year, that was 2005 when I did the call for submissions to create my own anthology. I did a call for submissions. I got a huge number of pieces. <laughs> I ended up with, you know, with amazing writers in it. Um, uh, somewhere at the very beginning of their careers, like Alex Espinosa and Reynard Grande and mm -hmm. Salvador Placencia. And then there were others like Luis Urrea, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, um, uh, Luis Rodriguez and and uh, Elena Maria Viromontes, you know, uh, people I had been reading for a while already. Ended up with like about thirty-five pieces, mm -hmm. and it's still the only anthology of his type. But that's just that shows. And one of the things I argue in that piece you mentioned was not only would having uh, something like that growing up really affected how I viewed myself as a person and deal with that horrible lurking imposter syndrome. Yeah. You know, when you're, cause when you're told you're stupid, you know, what does that do? It sticks with you. Um, yeah. It sticks with you. <clears throat> so, so it would also, however, present to students who are not of your background to see the beauty of your culture mm -hmm. and the intelligence of your culture. Mm -hmm. And what would that do for them? Because, you know, dealing with bigotry is a, is, is a two-way street. It's not not only fighting back as someone who receives it, but also trying to educate people and and hopefully educate our young people who are mm -hmm. not of a particular group mm -hmm. to to see the beauty of other groups and to appreciate the beauty of other groups right. uh, of of people. And you know that's part of my mission. You know, kind of be people into submission with the beauty of our <laughs> of our literature yeah you know the beauty of our plays the beauty of our our fiction and poetry and essays you know just just like overwhelm people with this amazing <laughs> work that comes that comes from our our community our various communities right. latinx communities because we have many communities mm -hmm. just do that and then um you know it's like you smother people you win them over with love, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, and that's such a noble, necessary mission. And I, I do subscribe to that. But I'm, I'm really excited to get to know the work because at least even for people like myself who are not necessarily, have not necessarily been a part of the culture specifically, but are now sort of playing catch up in a lot of ways and seeking out these resources. What a great thing that you're doing to present this stuff for people like us who are trying to discover more about this community that's in between so it's it's pretty remarkable well you're adding to it with your own writing you're adding to it so you're becoming part mm -hmm. of the canon and the more you get your you know mm -hmm. and it's hard yeah <laughs> you know writing is a joy for me but getting it out there is hard Absolutely. it takes it takes perseverance and i remember when my dad um when he was visiting um, my house a, a few years back and he saw my a bunch of binders in my bookshelves <laughs> and he asked what one set of binders were and i said they're my rejection slips <laughs> and he said why do you keep your rejection slips and i said because they make me angry and they make me submit more <laughs> so oh, so man. you know yeah. you have to turn that negative to survive in this in 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 the writing world you got to turn that negative 
kind of feedback, which un unfortunately comes too often, mm -hmm. to turn it into something positive. Right. And for me, it's like, okay, they won't accept me. I'm going to try someone else. I'm going to try someone else. I'm going to try someone else. Yeah. And, not, and, then, and, and then if you work hard enough, hopefully you will get published. Unfortunately, my father went through the opposite experience, but this was in the late 50s, early 60s, mm -hmm. where he just couldn't find a publisher. And you know, I, I just imagine that those Chicano stories were just too Chicano for publishers yeah. back then. Yeah. You know? it's, a, it's a great tragedy that we don't get to have that part of the legacy, um, you know, moving forward. But I got one more question uh, for you. And of course, I want you to have your Sunday back and enjoy it. But um, before I get to that, what is something that you're currently working on that you'd like to, to let us know uh, that, that's coming out or, or a project that you're excited about that's in the works? So... In my, my last collection, which was published in February, um, How to Date a Flying Mexican, New and Collective Stories, the genesis of that was, um, was um, spending time with my, my late father and talking to him uh, about um, writing and life. And so what I ended up doing was reviewing almost 25 years worth of fiction that had been published before, choosing my favorites and then adding some new stories. Mm -hmm. Through that process, I ended up also developing a brand new manuscript, which now has a title um, of um, My Chicano Heart, New and Collected Stories of Love and Other Transgressions. <laughs> and that's being read by a publisher right now. And what, what I did was I took stories, my favorite stories from the past 25 years that had to do with love, different aspects of love or bromances, mm -hmm. or romances, you know, uh, different things. And then um, I had I had five brand new stories that I had written, including including the one I had described before, uh, My Chicano Heart, which is now the title story, mm -hmm. and, and added them to the mix. So that book is being read, and uh, by, um, by a publisher, I got my fingers crossed, the uh, acquisition editor is excited, but they have to send it out for peer review and they have to wait for comments to come back mm -hmm. and um so i'm excited about that and then i'm always reading books and going to do author interviews and mm -hmm. trying to uplift other writers and there's some you know there's some truly wonderful writers w one of them is uh is gabino iglesias who has a novel coming out mm -hmm. uh, in august and um, i'm just finishing that novel and i'll be doing a probably a short interview with him at some point. Oh, uh, the devil takes, the devil takes you home. That's the name of his novel. Uh -huh. And, uh, it's a brilliant crime novel and there's all kinds of craziness in it <laughs> that, uh, only Gabino can do, but, um, right. there are just wonderful writers out there. I want to try to help get the word out about them. Oh, lovely. So. Now, one last thing, and I tend to get lofty at the end and kind of romantic about this <laughs> because I think we need, we need a bit of hope right now and we need to lift mm. each other up. As you said, so for somebody who's just starting out, especially, uh, you know, a brown kid out there who may not feel like they see themselves in, in this literary world, what wisdom or, or bits of inspiration can you pass on that have made a difference for you over the years? Look for mentors, look for people who, um, uh, can, can share their wisdom and give support. I'm a member of AWP and I just 
finished and being a, a, a mentor for um, a new writer who now has an agent and has a novel being, you know, getting ready to, to be finalized. Because the mentor, particularly someone from your community, can, can kind of be the counterbalance to all the negativity, to the structural racism that exists in, you know, uh, in the publishing industry or within the creative writing community, you know, MFA programs, you know, um, um, too often there are voices out there that, that tell you your voice isn't just right or you need to change it or, or you know, they're not listening to who you are because they don't understand who you are. Mm -hmm. So find the members of our community who can, can, you know, be that kind of connective tissue of your support that's really, really important because I know early on when I started writing, by finding those kind of people, those other writers, mm -hmm. and connecting with them, even just to say hello and say hi, I read your piece and it meant a lot to me. You create these relationships. <laughs> um, that's that's your familia. That's going to be your literary familia. Okay, so that's mm -hmm. going to be the people who nurture you. So find those people because you you need a counterbalance. Because <laughs> believe me. Yeah. You know, you know how it is out there. <laughs> yeah. But Daniel, I think that's a really wonderful note to end on. And I can't thank you enough for the work that you're doing, not just for your writing, of course, but for this, this great mission that you're bringing forward to lift other creatives up through your work. Also for, for, you know, putting together the anthology that I'm really actually looking forward to reading because all of this is, is just, you know, I'm very selfishly inspired right now. I feel like this has been just such a uh, pleasure to get to know myself a little bit more and what's possible in terms of community. So I really can't thank you enough for that and for all that you're sharing with us. Well, back at you. And by the way, University of Wyoming also carried for a while, they may still have it, yeah. that anthology, Latinos in Lotus Land. Mm. So there are universities out there, e even in Wyoming. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll check it out, you know, but I, I will tell you before we go, uh, speaking of my my alma mater there, um, we did uh, a reading for the first of its kind here of Rudolfo Anaya's life. And I had wow. the great pleasure of playing Rudolfo Anaya for like a limited couple of weeks, which was oh. a phenomenal experience for me. But maybe we'll get to chat about that down the road. Um, oh, my gosh. I, it'd be uh, such a pleasure to get to talk to you again. So let me know when you have something else to you know, to promote and Abs I'll be around. <laughs> Absolutely. Just very quickly, um, I got to interview Rudy Anaya. Oh, um, lovely. Um, there's a short interview on the Los Angeles Review Books website. Okay. Um, and take a look at it. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to um, check it out. Oh my! He goodness. was he was important, very important. Still, is very important to us. So absolutely. Um, thank you for what you're doing. Um, peace and keep on writing. Okay. Oh, thank you, Daniel, so much. Hope to talk to you soon. Thanks okay. again. Take care. <laughs> Bye. Hey. 
Hey there, before I go, I just wanted to thank you for listening to the podcast. If you're enjoying Arts Calling, please consider rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen to these episodes. Every little bit helps to bring awareness about these wonderful artists that we're featuring on this podcast. And don't forget to say hi. I'm over on Twitter at CruiseFolio, and I would love to hear from you, love to know what you're working on, and I wish you the best in life and craft. Make art, make haste, and much love. Thank you.